we're in our last message on parable living, and I'm, I'm both uh, excited but also a little bit saddened um, because I think this has been a, a great series. I've had a lot of positive comments on this, and I, I, I think at one point I just said, I think a lot of it comes down to how do you go wrong when you talk about what Jesus taught? <laughs> it's like that's pretty straightforward, right? So um, I, I think there's times I go, we could probably just read through the parable and then that had been the morning, just let Jesus do it himself. But he's also not called us to do that, which is part of why we do teaching preaching like we do. And so um, this, this, is, this being the last one, I think this is a good appropriate place for us to end. And it'll, I think it should challenge each of us. And um, I want to kind of say this. With the challenges that will come out of this, I, I don't think it means that, that our lives are totally upturned, okay? But I think we do need to make sure that our lives are totally upturned. And, and hopefully that'll make sense when we get to the end of this, this parable, uh, the actually two that we're looking at this morning. And I actually want to start in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, with some remarks that Jesus made in <clears throat> the Beatitudes uh, during the uh, Sermon on the Mount, actually. Um, and he, he begins in verse 3, um, and, and in, these, in this Sermon on the Mount, in these, uh, these part of the, the Blessed series here, he does refer to the kingdom of heaven, and that's what we're going to be looking at in the parables later in Matthew chapter 13. So I think this is a good setup, because here's what we, we see Jesus say um, in Matthew 5, 3. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I was, as I was studying this week, um, I came across this comment by John MacArthur. And I thought this was really, really important. He says this, The only way anybody ever enters the kingdom is when he realizes he can't. Strips himself naked. Now, we're not talking about physically. That's metaphorically, okay? Uh, and I think especially of self-reliance, okay? So strips himself naked of self-reliance and arrives back at Matthew 5, 3. And what does that mean? Broken in spirit and mourning and hungering and thirsting for a righteousness he can never attain on his own. Y you get that? that? That blessed are those who are what? Poor in spirit, for those is the kingdom of heaven. Being poor in spirit means recognizing that we come with nothing. And it's recognizing that anything that we have towards the kingdom of heaven is all a result of the work of Christ. And so when you think about that kingdom of heaven, I think that relationship is incredible uh, and important for us, especially this morning, to think through. So I, I wonder this. Are we here this morning recognizing the need for ultimate, our, our own personal ultimate humility and dependence upon the grace of God. I, I don't, I'll be honest, I don't think that's a lot of what the modern Christian culture depends on. I think a lot of Christian culture today depends on being good, trying to think the right things, trying to do all the right things, instead of utter dependence upon Christ. And I'm not saying that we don't respond to him and, and walk those things out. But those things are founded on utter dependence in Christ. So with that said, let's look at Matthew 13, 44 through 46. Give you a second to get there. 
we're going to actually be looking at two parables this morning. And I, th- I think there's a, a, a specific reason that Jesus gives these two parables back to back and couches them just a little differently because I think it deals with two types of people that, that most of us fall in, into the, one of the two categories. Okay, and I'll explain that in a minute. So you guys ready? Matthew 13, 44 through 46. Um, hey, uh, Thomas, can you do me a favor? Are these lights not working right this morning? Is that what's going on? Okay, so, okay, because there is a different glare, and so instead of me just keep thinking about it, it's addressed, we'll move on. You're great, man, thanks. I, the blue light might help. That's may, maybe casting a weird glare. That's, that's better for me. Thanks, man. Is that better for y'all? I don't look like a Smurf anymore? <laughs> a little yellow now compared, comparatively? Okay. <laughs> Thank you. If you don't know where that's coming from, I just shaved my beard about a month ago, and um, I'm getting a lot of grief for it. But I don't look nearly my age um, without the beard, I think. Thanks, Steve. Katie likes me without the beard, right? So I'm going with, I'll pray about it. (laughs) You're not the Holy Spirit, praise the Lord. Um, Christy, that's a good thing for you too, right? Okay. Man, oh, man, how do we get on these bunny trails? It's ridiculous. All right, Matthew 13, 44. Can we redeem this thing? The kingdom of heaven is like, thus thus the title for this morning's message, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Wow. First of all, I I hope you'll recognize, for some reason, and I I get this the longer I study, and you may already know these things from this, but Jesus describes the kingdom of heaven here. And he says the kingdom of heaven is like these things. And here's what he he reveals about it. It's, It's that the kingdom of heaven is somehow hidden. There's something mysterious about that. We, we sung about this mysterious God that is not fully known, but yet, what do we know? We know him, right? And, and, and through the scriptures, this mysterious God who, who remains mysterious above our heads, we, I love this theological word, transcendent, that means we can't fully experience him. We come back to um, our logo. It's not up on the, in the room right now. Um, but you think about that one thing when we worship God. God is separate from us. And, and so he is transcendent. We cannot really ascend to who he is. Yet in all of those things, even though he's totally other than us, even though he's mysterious, he reveals himself to us. And so when we look at these, this kingdom of heaven is like this treasure hidden in a field and this pearl that this merchant was searching for, there is this revelation that we can somehow grasp it. And then I love this imagery because in both of these cases, what Jesus is expressing through the the treasure and the pearl is that it is invaluable. The kingdom of heaven and attaining it is invaluable. And I don't think that's the way most of us live today, especially if I were to look at modern Christianity. And I am going to put that in quotes because I don't think that most people value what we have in the kingdom of heaven being revealed through Jesus, and it really transforms our living. I think we want it to, but we, we, want, we search for these other kind of blessings that, are, that fall really short. 
So let me give you a little bit of understanding about this treasure in the field. Um, I've, I've read this parable lots of times before. And studying it for this message, I came across some interesting information that, that I think is really pertinent to this. Because I, I've always wondered, how did the treasure get in the field? Did any, has anybody ever, uh, else ever wondered that? Okay. So I, nobody, no, nobody's... Okay, I'm, I'm getting like weird looks like, okay, in Tennessee, this means yes, this means no, this means I don't know, okay? So has anybody ever else wondered where the treasure was? Yeah, okay, some of you are like, okay, never thought that, okay, good, some of you are with me. Okay, if you're not with me, just bear with me, um, because I've always wondered. So here's what happens traditionally when conquering nations would begin to uh, invade territories, people would take their treasures or their wealth and they would bury them in fields so that the conquering uh, soldiers couldn't find the treasure and, and pillage them. And, and so Jesus, I think, is alluding to that historical event that happened very commonplace. And so this, this man, and I think he's probably a, a, just a, a regular Joe working in this field that's owned by somebody else, is out there plowing and working the field. And all of a sudden his, his hoe or his rake or whatever hits something, and he starts pulling on it, and up pops this little thing, and he get, or gets the dirt out around it to go, i got to get this, this uh, hard rock out so I can till this ground right and produce the, the crop rightly, and as he starts clearing it, he realizes he's discovered some long-lost treasure. And so what he's concerned about is how can he acquire that, all right? So it, it's one of those things that, um, and, and, and I, maybe this will help you a little bit. If that man, that worker, finds that treasure, what, what is he going to do? And, and I think, would he parade that thing around and go, look what I found? What's the owner of the field going to do? It's his field. You found that in my field? That's my possession. It's, it's mine, whether he knew it was there or not. So what does this man do? He buries it back, and he goes and sells everything that he has to acquire that field so he can legitimately say that treasure is his. If the owner of the field knew that the treasure was there, do you think he would have sold the field? I wouldn't have. It was mine, right? I'd have gone, no, I know where the stuff's buried. Nobody's getting it. It's probably, as a matter of fact, probably every day I'd go, has that area been plowed? I'd, I'd keep kind of spying on that area without anybody knowing to make sure that nobody found it and acquired it because that's the precious stuff to me. So I think it was a generation or two lost uh, that they'd forgotten about that treasure or maybe, who knows, the, the guy was killed. We can't ever say in any of that stuff. My mind just starts worrying, okay, that, that sanctified imagination. But he finds that treasure and he wants to acquire that field. So now, um, let's look at the, the pearl because I think this also identifies the value of this. I, I'm, I'm not a, a jeweler, but I, I was thinking about, so I, I went and did a little bit of research. Did you know that pearls are the only gem material that is found within a living creature? That's pretty cool, isn't it? So anything else that is not found within a living creature, diamonds or rubies or anything else, pearls are unique in that regard. Here's what's also interesting. Natural pearls are very rare today. Now, back then, I'm, I'm assuming that the, all they had was natural pearls. And it was up until about the early 1800s that pearls could be found naturally very uh, frequently. But after the 1800s, they became in, endangered. And what happened is they started 
culturing pearls. Now, I did, I've heard those terms, but I didn't know anything about it. So cultured pearls literally mean this, that, that some farmer goes out and they take per, uh, clams or oysters and they insert a foreign object into that clam or oyster that's alive and then they put it in a seabed and they, they frame it off so those clams or oysters can't escape and they are cultured because they're inserted unnaturally. So what, what is literally said of natural pearls now, that it's one in millions that are found in natural pearls. So their value is extremely uh, high and rare. Um, so I can imagine that diving for a pearl and trying to find one would have been a very, very difficult task. And so we get this merchant who knows the value of those things, and he's, he's searching, and he finds one, and what does he do? He says, that's the pearl I want. That pearl is so rare and invaluable that I want to sell everything I have and, and acquire that. Now, I started thinking about this, um, and I want to give you, uh, a, a, hopefully this illustration will help a little bit. Um, gals, all of you gals that have some kind of expensive diamond on your hand that indicates something like you're engaged that you were engaged are engaged and now married right am i making sense this means yes still and this means no this means i don't know you're just talking crazy if you have that ring hold it up for me i'm not going to rob you later okay lots of la ladies don't don't rob anybody later guys okay um now, I can probably see a little bit of the glint if the lights were up a little bit more. Yes, I, Wendy's going, look at my big stone, baby. <laughs> Bragging on Brian. Katie, Katie and I, were, we had nothing when we were engaged, and it was like, yes, barely. We added some stones to it later. Um, so, but here's the thing. I could see those rings from here, right? But until I do what, would I, how, how can I determine the value of those things from here, Right? I can say, okay, i, I got to trust you, that's a diamond. But I don't know the clarity or the color or all the, the cuts and all that stuff that goes into it. But if I were to take a, a jeweler's magnifying glass, which, Madison, you'll appreciate this, it's called a loop, L-O-U-P-E. I've learned that this week. Madison worked at a jewelry store for a little while. You take that little loop, and then you begin to identify and look at it very carefully. Then you begin to understand what the value of it. And too many times, when, and, and this is where I think what Christ is saying in these parables, is too many times we look at our faith and Christianity from a little bit of distance without investigating it carefully and investing in it carefully. And we say, oh, yeah, that's worth something. But we really don't know the value of it. Do, do you get what I'm saying? How many times have we actually not valued well what we have in Christ because it's, it's just done from a distance because we're not really investing in it. And, and so when I think about these two guys, here's what I believe they did. I believe that they knew that the value of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is only discovered by serious investment. And today, people say, oh yeah, yeah, I, I'm a Christian. I do this, I do that. And their walk with the Lord is really, really not one of consistency, investment. It's not one that costs them much. It's really just cheap stuff. And folks, if I could say anything about us as a body of believers, as we gather and try to encourage one another about kingdom living, is that we would be people that shape each other and say, invest 
Invest heartily in your walk with the Lord because you'll be changed by it. And that's really what I want to unpack the rest of the, the, the morning today. So um, let's, let's look at a couple things. I think this is a really incredible truth. Look back at verse 44 with me. Here's, here's what's really, really interesting. The king, uh, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then listen to this next statement. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has. Turn over to Galatians chapter 5. Because I was thinking about this concept of, of joy. In Galatians 5.22, and you, you guys will be pretty familiar with this, but it, it says this, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. I, I think it's really interesting that this man went in joy and sold everything that he had. Here's, here's what I want you to notice. First of all, I think when, when you have those components, and, and, and I want to make this clear, when we talk about Galatians 5.22, and some of y'all are going to laugh because I'm getting on my soapbox, but Galatians 5.22 says there is singular fruit. Okay? So the fruit of the Spirit is, and it's comprised of all these things. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Okay? So now I want you to think about an orange with me. And think about an orange, it has the aroma. That's a component to it, right? You pick it up, you can smell it. When you begin to feel the texture of the outside, that, that rind uh, or the peel, you, you, you can begin to see and, and feel the color and sense the texture. Inside of that, you can get the rind inside. Then you have all those other little compartments where you have the slices, and then you have the juice, and then you have the seeds. All of those things, if I handed you an orange, you would say, yeah, that's a piece of fruit right? It's singular, but it com consists of all those components. Now, here's my point, and this is biblical, okay? There's one fruit of the Spirit, and it looks like all these things, and if I don't have joy, guess what? I don't have peace, and I don't have the other components, because all of those things come from the fruit that the Holy Spirit bursts in each of us. Now here's, and, and let me put this in terms of, of why I believe Jesus says that this man goes out because of his great joy and sells all that he has. Think about him burying the, the treasure, covering it back up, and going and selling. Now, if he didn't do that, if he covered it back up, and he went, okay, I, 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 can't, I, just, I, I can't go and sell everything I have. I'm fearful that people might think I'm crazy for selling all my stuff and going and buying that field. Even though that, that treasure in the field is worth, who knows, five, to five times as much as the, the field is itself. And he, he gets it, and he's going to be a richer man. But he thinks, I'm worried about my reputation. I'm worried about what people may think. Over, and I know how I am. So maybe this is just me, but I know I would mull and mull and mull. I wouldn't sleep at night. I wouldn't have, uh, I would have restless days. I'd be trying to figure out all this stuff. I would not cease to think about that treasure buried in the field. And the owner may not know about it, but I do. I'd walk by it every day going, has anybody else found it? Has anybody else found it? I would be worried. Because I didn't let the joy of what I knew, what could transform me, carry me into peace. Does that make sense? And patience and all those things. And so I think it's a huge thing that when we discover the joy of, of what it means to, to live in relationship with Christ, it sets us off on every other aspect of our lives. Because apart from Christ... There is no joy in life. Everything really is a fake or false or a faux pretense of that. 
And if you know Jesus well, you know that's the truth. Because in him, there is joy like no other. And, and I wish I could capture more of those thoughts. But I, I would say this. How are you doing in relationship with joy in terms of your relationship with Christ? If you're not discovering that, why not? Because that's the fruit of what he wants to bring, with, bring to you. And all of those other aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. joy. There's no greater thing than Christ. He is the greatest treasure. And when we begin to understand, we won't understand him fully. I get it. But when we do begin to understand him, let us pursue him with everything that we have. Let me give you this. So if, if I'm thinking about true joy, and I want to read what I wrote down because I think this is the best I can get my thoughts uh, on together. So true joy in the discovery is what leads to the eventual peace and further development of the qualities of godliness in a person's life. The joy is the product of acknowledging and responding to this truth that all other things are of little worth compared to the grace of God. You get that? True joy begins when we know that all other things are of little worth when we compare them to the grace of God. So when we know the grace of God, joy is ours. There's nothing like the grace of God. Because when we experience the grace of God, we know his love, and then we begin to experience a union with him where we once were divided because of sin, but the grace of God brings us in union with him, and then not just union, but it's communion with God. And anything else is of little worth compared to that. And so when we know the grace of God, there's great joy that is brought to us. Y'all get that? It's huge. It's, it's transforming. And I think this is, the, the next part is uh, a major thought that comes with this, because the kingdom of God is actually acquired by transaction. Now let me, let me say this. I am not saying that we can purchase the grace of God or our salvation. Okay? I'm not saying that it's by any works that we do. That, that would be against Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Okay? That says that it is not by works that any man may boast. Okay? So I'm not saying that. But there is a great exchange that happens. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here. So here is what I believe. And I want you to go think back to what I said about uh, MacArthur's statement about Matthew 5, 3. That we come stripping ourselves naked of anything of ourselves. We're saying there is an exchange, and here's the exchange. We surrender all that we have relied on. All of our earthly wealth, everything that we have uh, put stock in, we surrender to Christ for his sake. Isn't that what these guys did? They said everything that we've acquired up till now, every earthly possession, all the earthly wealth that we have is of nothing compared to that treasure. And I'll be honest, I don't think that we live that way today. And I'm not saying, this is where I started the message and say, I'm trying to turn things upside down. We might get turned upside down. I'm not saying we need to go and sell our homes, go and sell our cars, and we, we don't need to go and live in barrels naked. You know, monks did that at one point. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking in the sense that those things need to have the right uh, position, and we need to value Christ above all else. And I, I, I think we've got it reversed. I think so many people today think that if I know Jesus, he's going to give me health. 
He's going to give me wealth. He's going to make me prosper. And that is not the promise that Jesus gives. As a matter of fact, he says, you will suffer for my sake. You will struggle. People will condemn you. You will be challenged. He does not promise that stuff. But you know what? He is still worth it. Because his grace is of the greatest, of, is of greatest value. And there is nothing like it. And nothing worth knowing him and communing with this righteous God. So, let me move on. How do we get it? See, if, if, if we make this exchange, how do we rightly acquire this? And I think this is what Jesus communicates over and over in the scripture, that the kingdom becomes ours by faith. And I want to talk to you about faith for a second. I think this is good. Perry, this is what I was mentioning to you this morning as we were talking before the service. Faith has three aspects, okay? So you might take note on these things. The first aspect is this, intellectual. We, we need to have a, an intellectual aspect to our faith. It's, a, it's based on knowledge. God gives us truth, and that truth is reliable. Also, there's an emotional element to faith that there is this uh, part of us where we actually make a commitment and surrender to him, that our hearts are turned over to him, okay? Then there's also a volitional side where our wills serve him, okay? That, that we make these decisions in response to who he is and how we ought to live. But here's the thing, and I want to I break this down a little bit for you. If you take each, any of those and isolate them, that's not faith. Faith if those thing, things are not together, then, then it's not faith. For, let me give you for instance. If you just intellectually believe the gospel, where does that leave you? Even the demons believe. That, that's what Jesus says. But intellectual understanding is not enough. If you just have the emotional part, what, you, you've been around people that they, they flare up for Jesus, and then when something rough comes in their life, what happens? They crumble in the midst of it because they don't have the intellectual knowledge of the truth of Scripture to support the emotionalism that they, they have in their life. And so their, their Christianity is just like a, a sparkler. It may go for a little while and it just fizzles out. Then you've been around those people that have a volitional change. I look at those folks and I think, okay, they've made all these hard course corrections and they become legalistic. Because they really don't understand the grace of God. But they can walk in all these ways that appear right, and they make all these changes, but there's no heart to them. There's really not a, a growing knowledge of, of the Scripture. And so when we talk about faith, it needs to be all three of those areas that we surrender rightly to Christ and respond in faith to Him. Perry, does that help you in that conversation that you've been having? Because I immediately thought, there, there is this intellect but there's not an emotion, there's not volition in that conversation that you're having. And, and I just want to encourage you. I'm praying with you about that, man. Okay? And, and so how we rightly respond in faith to the, to the Lord is key. It's every aspect of who we are. And, and folks, I think that's part of the problem of modern Christianity. Is people want it on their terms. They don't want to come in whole and surrender fully. To Christ. 
They say, oh, I've got an intellectual faith. That's enough for me. But I don't have to surrender. I don't have to sell all that I possess to get him. It's not really that I value him. I'll I'll do it this way, but I I don't want that other side of that investment. I'll, I'll be volitionally committed, and I'll make all these transitions because socially it'll change the world, right? But the truth is, it's not changing them internally. Transformation is us, and it's the gospel at work in us. Let me give you another one. And uh, this one may be a little bit interesting perspective. But I think this too. And and how many of you guys have read Respectable Sins by Jerry Bridges? I recommended this book book a couple years ago. Um, Juliana, stand up for me. I'm not going to embarrass you, I hope. Okay? This is my daughter, Juliana. (laughs) Okay, you didn't have to wave or anything. I don't know what you're... Doing. That's fine. She's, she's not easily embarrassed. She's a dancer. She dances on stage. You want to come dance for me? No. Now I'm embarrassing her. So you can sit back down. Yeah. There's a reason. Thanks, sweetie. There's a reason I had Juliana stand. Um, we were uh, blessed to have several, and, I, and it's not enough for everybody, okay, but some coupons to LifeWay, uh, and it's a 40% off on one item. Juliana's going to be out front in the foyer. If you would do something for me, if you're interested in this book after I talk about it, go grab a coupon from Juliana and go get it at Lifeway, okay, at 40% off. This book, again, Respectable Sins by Jerry Bridges. Here's what he identifies, and this is, this is what um, I, th- I think struck me. Too many times we as Christians hang on to sins that we call respectable that we think, oh, that's not so bad. And so here's some of the, ch- the chapter titles. And by the way, just, just so you all know, I mean it when I've read through this and it's a great book. I hardly ever take notes in the front of a book, but every page has marks all over it, okay? So I'm, I'm serious about it. Um, great, great book. So he deals with things like anxiety and frustration, discontentment. We don't like thinking that that's sin, do we? Unthankfulness. We know pride is sin, but boy, we live with it. Selfishness. Boy, I can tell you some things about myself and selfishness. Uh, Lack of self-control. Impatience and irritability. The weeds of anger. Judgmentalism. Sins of the tongue, worldliness. And that's that's just a few of of the 17 chapters or so in that book that he addresses. Now, here's my point. I think we today... Hold on to sins that we say are respectable, and we don't surrender those either to the Lord. We, we look at the world and we say, oh, we're not as bad as them, and we try to justify our sins instead of exchanging those for the greatest treasure too. And folks, I want to encourage you, don't hang on to anything other than Christ. If we could exchange it all for His great grace and His love, we would be way different. We'd find great joy, and we'd find great peace, and we'd find patience, and all of those characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit, and it would start really becoming ripe in us. Does that make sense? And so I want to encourage you, let us be people that deal with sin rightly. So, in conclusion, what's the challenge for us? I want to read a quote um, by John Calvin. I, I, uh, I don't care what your stance is on Calvinism and Arminianism and all that stuff. It's debatable and blah, 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 blah. 
mean, I, I, I got my stance and all that kind of stuff. But here's one of the interesting things about John Calvin. He was a great, great student of the Word. And his commentaries on Scripture are really, really rich. And here's what he says. Um, he says, the natural meaning of the words is that the gospel does not receive from us the respect which it deserves unless we prefer it to all the riches, pleasures, honors, and advantages of the world and to such an extent that we are satisfied with the spiritual blessings which it promises and throw aside everything that would keep us from enjoying them. For those who aspire to heaven must be disengaged from everything that would retard their progress. Simple. We love in Jesus more than we love the things of this world. And if we're not, then we're being retarded in our progress. That's a scary place. I thought that is a great place to end this message because the challenge for us is this. What do we love? Or more importantly, who do we love? How are you loving Jesus well? Are you pursuing him with all that you have? It's pretty simple. And that doesn't mean you stop work. It it doesn't mean that you deny your family. No, 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 no. But it means in everything that Christ is preeminent. That he is taking the priority and you're living for him in every one of those things. Because he would have you what? Work hard in your job as unto him. He would have you love your family well. He would have you provide for your family's needs. He would have you do all these things as unto him. But I think so many times we get it reversed and we want him to do all these things as unto us to make us look good. Folks, if we could be different because we live out the parables, and especially this one, that we exchange all that we have for Christ, how different would we be? That's what kingdom living is really like. You get it? I I hope that it both challenges you and encourages you to love Jesus well.